0: ICE Theaters, the market's most immersive and high-end premium format. Because the light shall be treated like sound, coming from everywhere. Discover the ICE Theaters experience and embark on an immersive odyssey beyond reality. ICE Theaters, meet us at Cinemacon with 2113A.
1: I think at the end of the first year, I want the members across the board to be able to look at NATO, NATO's operation, and have confidence in the leadership that we have, confidence that we have a clear vision of what we're trying to attain, and most importantly, confidence that we have a plan to get to those priorities. You know, everybody in Washington has a strategic plan. The truth is what differentiates the people that succeed and the people that don't succeed is their ability to execute against it.
2: This is the Box Office Podcast. I'm Daniel Luria, the editorial director of Box Office Pro, the Pulse of Theatrical Exhibition, here with my colleague and co-host, Rebecca Pauly, Deputy Editor of Box Office Pro, in our special CinemaCon 2023 edition. It is Monday, April 24th in Las Vegas, Nevada. Rebecca and I are going to be presenting all of the news and updates that are going to be relevant for everyone attending the show and everybody following the show from back home. Before we get started, a special thank you to our title, title sponsor Ice Theaters who is making this entire week possible. So Rebecca, let's jump right into the daily schedule because we do have a lot to go over before our feature segment where we will be interviewing Michael O'Leary, the new president and CEO of the National Association of Theater Owners in his first appearance on the Box Office podcast, followed by an old familiar friend here for Box Office Pro, Rolando Rodriguez, the chairman of NATO. He will also be joining us in the second half of the episode. First half, however, let's talk schedule. It's a bright and early start here at CinemaCon. Rebecca, what's our daily schedule here on the agenda?
3: as always, we start off the first half of Monday with International Day. The low-key, Daniel, that's kind of always my favorite part of CinemaCon in terms of, you know, being informative and learning about different markets. This year, we're going to kick off with some keynote addresses. From the exhibition side, we have Ajay Bijli, the Managing Director at PBR INOX, which is the biggest theater chain in India. And then on the international keynote distribution side, we have Mark Vian, President of International Theatrical Distribution at Paramount. So that is the International Day Breakfast, where we will also be seeing a special industry address from Jeffrey Cole, director of the Center for the Digital Future at University of Southern California. And then, yeah, from there, we are going into some International Day seminars, one of them hosted by our own CEO here at the box office company, Julian Marcel. We have that. Then we have the International Lunch and Awards Ceremony with Avatar the Way of Water and several key figures of the international exhibition scene receiving awards, culminating in our first studio presentation tonight with Sony Pictures.
2: Yeah, you mentioned uh, Ajay Beasley from PVR INOX. You actually have an interview as part of this week's worth of daily podcast episodes that's coming to you on Thursday, Rebecca's interview with Ajay Beasley, the managing director of PVR INOX. And you also mentioned, Rebecca, a panel hosted by our very own CEO, Julianne Marcel, alongside Tony Chambers, the EVP and head of theatrical distribution at the Walt Disney Company, and Jane Hastings, the managing director and CEO. CEO of Australia's EVT Event Cinemas. We're going to be having highlights of that panel on the Friday episode. Of the box office podcast at CinemaCon 2023, presented by Ice Theaters. Don't forget to subscribe, as I've been mentioning. We're going to have daily episodes going over everything happening here in Las Vegas this afternoon, Rebecca. Before we've got that big opening night kickoff presentation from the studio side uh, with Sony presenting over at the Coliseum at 6:15 p.m. We've got a couple of interesting panels that we'll be bringing in insights from in tomorrow morning's episode. Especially, I'm looking here at 4 p.m., National Cinema Day, a global event moderated by CNBC Sarah Witten with panelists Eduardo Acuña, the president of Cinepolis Americas. Chris Aronson, the president of domestic distribution at Paramount, and friends of the podcast, Bobby Bagby Ford, the CCO and EVP over at BB Theaters, and Tim Richards, the founder and CEO at View International. We're going to be bringing insights from all these panels tomorrow morning, but today we have a lot to look forward to. We haven't seen anything, obviously. We're having this episode to start off the morning. So, Rebecca and I are going to be previewing our biggest questions going into CinemaCon 2023 before we take it over to our interviews with NATO's Michael O'Leary and Rolando Rodriguez. Rebecca, we do this every year, right as we settle into Caesars Palace. We go over the major topics leading into this year's event. I think top of mind here is a big question that everybody has now that the pandemic is settling down what is the M&A going to look like, the mergers and acquisitions, the consolidation, the expansion of major global circuits? Right as we exit the pandemic, we've got a Chapter 11 headline with Cineworld. We've got a couple of circuits merging, coming together. Let's start with the first item on the table, Cineworld. As I understand that coming into this week in Vegas, we got news that the company is no longer looking to sell It's rest of the world cinema business outside of the U.S. and U.K.,
3: yeah, Daniel. The way that they have phrased it is that they've quote uh, terminated the marketing process for rest of world business, rest of world meeting outside of Center World operations in the UK and outside of the US, where uh, of course they operate as Regal Cineworld Apparently, received proposals for that rest of the world business from a number of uh, prospective counterparties. You can tell I'm just reading the legalese here because I want to get everything right when it's legal and <laughs> it's legally related. <laughs> um, but uh, none of the per- proposals met the value level required by the group's lenders. So they got some proposals. They were not up to the level that they wanted. When we know from past uh, reports of kind of the legal situation of what's going on with Cineworld, they were getting offers on these rest of the world parts of their operation. And it was the Regal and the Cineworld and the, you know, the quote unquote main parts of Cineworld operations that they were having a hard time finding a buyer who came in with the cash figure that they wanted. But Cineworld is still expecting to exit Chapter 11 bankruptcy sometime in the first half of this year. I and mean, it's one of those things where it's a huge question for the industry. You know, what's going to happen with Cineworld? What sort of m a action are we looking at from what other parties? I mean, I expect that we're like not going to be hearing that much concrete about it at CinemaCon if anything I mean nobody's nobody's going to be commenting on ongoing legal proceedings right we're going to have to wait on this
2: Yeah, I think it's going to be a wait and see game. If anything, we're probably not going to be hearing much, if anything, of Cineworld and Regal this week at CinemaCon. I think the dust is still settling there. There are a couple of collateral damage questions here. I think specifically the situation happening right now with National Cinemedia, NCM, the number one advertising, cinema advertising network in the United States also filing for Chapter 11 bankruptcy, also reorganizing as we know. There is some legal action between Regal and NCM as we're trying to sort of settle up all the accounts here as we exit this very tricky part of the pandemic. Those are the sort of related issues that we're looking at. Also, we can't forget the Cineplex decision over in a Canadian court. With that's, their own still, deniers- that's still
3: trucking its way through the court system. And I mean, I, I yeah. can't, uh, maybe next, year, maybe 2024 CinemaCon, maybe by then we'll know how that shakes out. But it would be irresponsible of us, we're not lawyers, to speculate on that.
2: Yeah, we still don't know how it's all going to play out. For our listeners that that aren't acquainted with this, right before the pandemic, Cineworld, the second largest exhibition circuit in the world, got into uh, terms. A deal to acquire Cineplex, the leading Canadian circuit in Canada. During the pandemic, Cineworld backed out of that purchase. Cineplex claimed damages that ended up being awarded to them by a Canadian court court. Totaling nearly 1 billion US dollars with the Chapter 11 filing from Cineworld, that is still up in the air. So there are still a lot of unresolved questions in the M&A front that we can't answer. But we are getting a little bit more clarity as there is a plan for Cineworld and Regal and the rest of the world circuit, the business in Eastern Europe, in Israel, for Cineworld to emerge. From that chapter 11. What we will get a better sense of is what circuits that have gone through this MA look like, what that value proposition is, not only for consumers. But for the industry, yeah, and I think when we look at the big picture here, there aren't that many major circuits that I think are in a financial position to make a big deal that could get us into that PVR INOX territory that we're seeing over in India. As we know, CGR, the second largest circuit in France, reported being for sale last year. There are circuits that carry, I think, a lot of uh, momentum, a lot of uh, prominence that are out there for someone to buy. We just haven't seen anyone commit to that quite yet. There are maybe a handful of circuits that I think could be in a position to expand. I'm not sure if we're going to get any of those headlines this week. Off the top of my head, I'm thinking of players like AMC Theaters here out of the U.S., the number one exhibition chain in the world. You've also got another global leader in Cinepolis that has shown this great ambition in growing outside of the Mexican market. They're in the US now, they're in Spain, they're in Saudi Arabia, they're in the Gulf. You've got players like View International still in Europe. You could see them maybe expanding beyond Europe at some point. We don't know that for a fact. I'm just saying these are the players that could make a play. And let's not lose sight of Cinemark. Cinemark, if we talk about the top US chains that are publicly traded, that is a very stable chain in the stock market, Cinemark could have some expansion plans that they could execute. As we know, they're also present all over Latin America. Again, this isn't news. We're just talking about the players here that are in the position to make a play. The players that are in the position to grow and expand. We'll have to see what the confidence is in the market after this week.
3: And we have to note as well, Daniel, that when we're looking at players who may play a role in any MMA happening somewhere down the line, there are companies outside of the cinema exhibition space. I mean, we've talked about this on the podcast a lot before. Rumors will winging their way around the internet about Apple or Amazon or Netflix or, you know, pick whichever gigantic tech company people are talking about this week. Maybe investing in a cinema circuit. You know, I don't think we're going to get any sort of announcements to that effect during the CinemaCon at all. But uh, kind of tying to what we spoke about on last Thursday's episode, looking forward more from the studio side, but we're going to be seeing studios. I mean, I'm curious as to what we're going to be seeing from, you know, Netflix, Amazon, Apple, from the show itself, because they do have films that are coming out in theaters, you know, in partnership with more established studios sony paramount so that's something that i'm uh, interested in what if anything are we going to hear from these streamers on their investment in the theatrical space
2: yeah i think it's going to be an interesting year when it comes to what exactly we find out from streamers at cinemacon you mentioned those apple titles right you've got killers of a flower moon from martin scorsese that's an apple production coming out through paramount martin scorsese is going to be part Of CinemaCon this year, he's being interviewed at the Filmmaker Lunch on Thursday, right after the Paramount presentation. We'll be talking about all those highlights on our Friday episode of this podcast series. And I do wonder if Ridley Scott's Napoleon, which is scheduled to come out later this year in the fall through Sony, I am very curious to see if we get to see any of that title during Sony's presentation. Now, in prior years, Netflix has had No real presence as a presenter at CinemaCon. We know that our colleagues from Netflix do attend the show, at least on the theatrical relations side. We know they're there taking meetings, having conversations. But in terms of presenting content, they've never done it in the past. They won't do it again this year. But Amazon has been a player in the past. I don't know if you remember, Rebecca, that one CinemaCon where uh, Amazon- Yes, they held a luncheon. And they actually, I will never forget this. During the rubber chicken lunch that everybody's eating at CinemaCon, they screened, I think, one of the death sequences of Luca Guadagino's Suspiria, where that poor woman (laughs) is turned into a human pretzel. Yeah, we got to see that while eating rubber chicken. I think a lot of people walked out. Because it was effective. As soon as I saw that footage, I'm like, okay, Amazon knows what they're doing. They know what they're going for. Unfortunately, they won't have a presence at this year's show after that uh, MGM United Artists acquisition that Amazon had last year. We weren't sure if they were going to show up as a presenter at this year's event. They aren't going to, but that doesn't mean we won't see them in the future. Unfortunately, Amazon is going to be a silent partner in terms of what we see on the screen during this week. But there are other things that we have to look forward to here this week, Rebecca, because I think another big, big talking point related to all of this talk in studio presentations of the sort of movies that are gonna be coming out is the 2023 box office. Still in recovery. We're not hitting that 11 billion mark that we got used to here domestically, but we may not be so far off after last year's numbers. Big question coming in this year, What milestones can the global and domestic film industry hit at the box office?
3: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, and inextricably tied in with that, you know, as we've seen recently in, for example, the Cinema Foundation's uh, State of the Industry Report, which you can find uh, linked in the description of this episode, you know, a large part of the reason that we are not seeing those like $11 billion heights that we saw pre-pandemic is is just surely that we are not seeing the number of films come out as came out pre-pandemic. I mean, I know CinemaCon is the time for studios to come out and to, really talk up these big tentpole releases that they have coming down the line. But speaking to exhibitors, you know, over these last two years, Daniel, I mean, it's not just us that's saying this, that we need more mid-range titles. We need more mid-range titles across a variety of genres geared towards a variety of audiences. What the intersection of mid-range titles and CinemaCon looks like, I'm excited to see what sort of, you know, what sort of titles like that, what sort of original IP we're getting. If you listen back again to, uh, to our most recent episode, episode anticipating the films that are going to be previewed at this year's CinemaCon. You know, it's a lot of franchises. It's a lot of IP, which makes sense. But yeah, I'm excited to see maybe some of those, uh, those smaller films that can kind of, you know, keep the momentum going in between some of these huge Temple titles.
2: And it's so hard to tell that, especially from a CinemaCon presentation level, right? It's so hard for us to walk in into an event that's based on hype, that's based on anticipation, on... A very small snippet of footage and make clear determinations on how these things are going to perform once they hit the market. What I will say, talking about the mid range titles that, that you mentioned, is that at the very least, we know that studios like Lionsgate that haven't had an opportunity to come out with a full theatrical slate during the pandemic era are finally doing so. The proof is in the pudding with John Wick Chapter Four hitting those franchise high numbers. And I'm really looking forward to that Lionsgate presentation To close out the week to see how they're going to complement the marketplace. They have a lot of established IPs that can come in and really be inflection points that don't have to be your Marvel, don't have to be your Pixar, that come in and help fill out and round out a release schedule. And I do think that that Lionsgate presentation is going to be giving us a lot of indications on just how much more we can grow this year. I think the benchmark here to look at is the same benchmark I've been saying since Cinemas reopened. I don't think the domestic industry is going to hit 10 billion. I don't. Not this year, not last year. But it's a good benchmark to have. It's a great curve to grade on because if 10 billion is going to be our A, you have to think hitting 9 billion domestically is going to be a solid A. And an 8.5 is going to be a good year
3: like and 11 billion if we don't hit that 11 i mean that was that was a year when you know some of the biggest film that was Star Wars Rise of Skywalker i mean i, I feel like maybe there's the sense or this feeling among some people that you know if we don't get back to pre-pandemic levels then you know we're failing as an industry that's kind of arbitrary it's arbitrary right and
2: completely unfair when you look at every other industry you're not taking the hotel and hospitality industry, hotels and restaurants, which are industries that were just as affected as theaters and grading them on the same curve. You're not grading them on the same level of recovery. So we really have to step back from that anxiety of trying to validate ourselves to streaming, validate ourselves to other media forms, and just understand, hey, we just went through an extinction level event three years ago. It's okay to recover. It's okay for things to happen step by step.
3: Yeah, I feel like we don't have to be so. Uh, I guess maybe defensive of. <laughs> I don't
2: know. We tend to, we tend to get that way, and I think that's one of the drawbacks. I think of this event, right? It's CinemaCon, where we have to always go back to this mantra: there's some magic in the movie going experience. The big screen is king. Yeah, we get it. It gets to be repetitive sometimes. I feel it's said at this event as a way to get over those insecurities. What I'm trying to bring this year is just look at these numbers there's nothing to be insecure about. Look at the level of recovery we're having. Look at that Q1 performance. Look at what Q2 is going to bring. I think we're at the point where we have to be a little bit less concerned and a little bit more excited. And that's something that Rolando Rodriguez echoes, the chairman of the National Association of Theater Owners, in the interview segment of today's episode. He's coming here on the second half of the conversation. And I think that's a natural transition, Rebecca, to one of the big questions, if not the biggest question Going into CinemaCon this year, we have to address it as it is. The National Association of Theater Owners has had a leader in John Fithian for over 30 years as its president and CEO. John Fithian is stepping down from that role at the end of this week. At the end of CinemaCon, he is retiring, and you're going to have. The biggest transition, I believe, in the history of NATO, I don't think I am underselling this. This transition for NATO is equivalent to the transition that the Motion Picture Association went through when Jack Valenti stepped down from that role. This is the biggest transition in the association's history. And I think that's a topic that is going to draw a lot of attention this week. You won't hear it in the headlines, but I think a lot of the conversation in the bars, in the after-hour lounges between executives is going to be exactly that. What is NATO under the leadership of Michael P. O'Leary, its new president and CEO as of May 1st, what is that going to look like? Now, we answer part of that question in the interview segment that's following just shortly here, our first conversation with Michael O'Leary on what NATO is going to look like. But I think just based on his profile, we already have an indication of what the new NATO is going to be looking like.
3: I mean, it's interesting, Daniel, because as you note, I mean, I think everyone in the industry is on the same page that the movies are back. We've had some of the highest grossing movies ever come out in the last few years. We've survived the pandemic. I want to hear the word pandemic at Cinemacon this year. I'm gonna be I'm gonna be counting off the number of times that I hear it. Because there are actual Issues that are still up in the air and that need serious discussion under NATO under its new CEO Michael O'Leary. We have ADA regulations both on the federal level and just down more towards the uh, towards state and city level. We definitely have our fair share of labor issues, like every other you know, like every other industry does right now. We have a wave of unionization that's happening in other industries around the country. And
2: that's, that's something we have to talk about. It's uncomfortable to talk about because it is a scary topic to bring in. And it's, I think, a multifaceted conversation to have. It's unfair to talk about unionization in a bubble. But right now, as you know, Rebecca, we're seeing a lot of brick-and-mortar chains going through levels of unionization that we haven't seen in the past. Chains like Starbucks and Chipotle, they're having labor conversations that we weren't seeing five to 10 years ago.
3: And these are individual stores. It's not just on a chain basis.
2: And we're not in a position here to say yes or no in terms of labor or unionization. We're not walking into that bear trap. We're gonna let that stand on the side. What we're just saying is that this is an ongoing issue, an ongoing labor relations issue for a lot of industries out there Cinemas are not immune to it. This is going to be one of those issues, I think, that's going to creep up in the coming years. This is a hire that NATO made with the explicit purpose of bringing someone in with D.C. experience. This is someone with that D.C. lobbying background that can have these conversations, that can bring in a lot of these perspectives and insights, because there is a whole slew of policy issues that are just in. The horizon that I think the industry is going to have to deal with. None of these issues are going to be mentioned, I think, at CinemaCon this year. But I think the big question we're all asking ourselves is how is NATO going to evolve? How is it going to change? What are those priorities going to be? And I think in that uh, interview that we have coming up shortly, you'll be able to hear from Michael O'Leary himself on what a successful first year at NATO is going to look like for him, and a little bit of that expertise and background he's going to be bringing into that role. And without further ado, Rebecca, I think this is the best lead-in we could possibly come up with so we get into the feature segment, hear from Michael himself as the new president and CEO of NATO, and then hear a little bit more from Rolando Rodriguez, the chairman of this association. That's coming up right after this commercial break and message from one of our sponsors. This episode of the Box Office Podcasts CinemaCon 2023 edition is supported by Park VIP. Park VIP is the newest, coolest and must-have tech to add to your movie theaters. Your guest experience starts in the parking lot, but we all know how those parking lots can get during the weekends. And Park VIP allows your guests to reserve a VIP parking space before they arrive, avoiding that unpleasant hunt for a space. It's a breeze to use and it's integrated right into your ticket flow. Here's how it works. Customer arrives, clicks on a link from Park VIP and gets access to their premium parking space. You collect the revenue, Park VIP handles all the installations and maintenance. With no downside risk, isn't it time for you to add a new revenue stream to your theater? Visit parkvip.app for more info. That's parkvip.app for more information. And we are here back on the Box Office Podcast in this CinemaCon edition with a very special guest, the new head of the National Association of Theater Owners, beginning his term on May 1st, right after this event. We've got Michael P. O'Leary. Michael, welcome so much for your first appearance here on the podcast with us. Well, thank you, Daniel. I'm, uh, I'm
1: delighted to be here.
2: Yeah, let's uh, let's hop right in because I know a lot of folks in this industry really want to get to know you a little bit more. We're going to have plenty of time in the ensuing months and years to go and talk business and talk lobbying efforts, talk about the big ticket items facing the industry. Let's use this as a nice introductory conversation, starting with CinemaCon. You've been to this event before. You've been part of this industry for many years. Do you remember the first time you came to this event and what your initial impressions were of going to Vegas?
1: yeah, I do remember I went when I was working with the Motion Picture Association and I you know frankly on my flight out to Las Vegas, I wasn't sure what to expect. I had heard about it. I knew about it obviously, but I'd never been before and when I got there it was uh, you know just an amazing event. everybody in the industry that you'd want to know is there, obviously getting to see the some of the movies. just an amazing showcase really of this terrific industry. and so I was able to go. Probably three or four times, I think. And each time I went, I enjoyed it very much. Obviously, this year, it's in a slightly different capacity and um, <laughs> probably have a, be a little bit more scheduled this time than I was in the past. But, you know, from my perspective, coming on board with NATO, it's a great opportunity to see so many of the key players in this industry all in one place and to do so kind of with the backdrop of uh, the celebration of this industry, which, you know, is really, I think, got some positive wind in its sails uh, as we head into 2023. Absolutely. And uh, you're
2: bringing, uh, I think, a great background for the position. You're trained as a lawyer, and you've also got a lot of lobbying experience in Washington, D.C. Let's go into that. You went into law school, you graduated. How did you end up in Washington, D.C. from, was it Arizona for law school?
1: it was i was at the i'd gone to arizona state university go sun devils and then uh, i went to the university of arizona for law school and i actually spent my last semester in law school as an intern in the united states senate and that's how I ended up back in Washington. I did my internship. I went back to Tucson. I graduated and about, uh, I was working in a small firm in Phoenix, and I got a phone call saying, hey, how would you like to move to Washington for about a third of the pay you're making now and work for uh, the Judiciary Committee full-time? And I, you know, loved my time in Washington when I was in law school and moved back here. And the idea was, I think, as many people in Washington will tell you the idea was to come for three or four or five years and now I've you know been here raised a family and you know lived most of my life in Washington so that's how I ended up back here.
2: And once you're in Washington you get involved with the Motion Picture Association can you tell us about that because it seems to be a big part of your career leading into this current role?
1: Yeah I think the uh My time with the Motion Picture Association had a significant impact on kind of the advocate that I've become the way I do everything from, you know, advocacy to managing teams to building relationships. So I worked on the Hill for a while, then I left and went to the Justice Department for a number of years and really had a tremendous experience there. When the opportunity presented itself to go to the Motion Picture Association, And at first, I was a little bit reticent about it, frankly. I really enjoyed what I was doing at the Justice Department. I was working in the criminal division. I had a good team of prosecutors, and we were doing a lot of fun stuff. And I didn't know that much about what the Motion Picture Association did, to be honest with you. And over time, as I kept talking to them, the fact that I didn't really understand what they did became kind of a selling point to me. I thought, you know, maybe at this point in my career you know, I should be exploring new and different things. And so in a very real sense, I kind of went there. I mean, I had a good background in intellectual property law, and I understood copyright, and I understood, you know, how Washington works and all of that. But I didn't understand how the movie industry worked. And so when I went over there, I did so very, you know, with a very clear focus that I wanted to understand how this industry worked. You know, and as you know, that's much... Uh, more difficult than people probably imagine to understand. But I spent almost 10 years there. I've made some lifelong friendships there. That's really where I fell in love with this industry. And part of the reason I'm so excited to be back in it with NATO, because it's, uh, I really started to appreciate the creativity and the innovation that goes into it, the people that make the great products that we enjoy, whether they're movies or television shows. And so, I think that my time at the MPA had a very influential, was a very influential time in my career.
2: And let's talk about the NATO position. What was it that drew you to the role? What attracted you about joining NATO at this time? Cause it's, it's not the easiest period for the movie theater industry as I think the entire ecosystem is recovering from the pandemic, but movie theaters, especially so.
1: Yeah, I mean, actually, you know, that's one of the reasons it was appealing to me is I think there are some challenges there. And, you know, at the same time, I fundamentally believe I believed it before I interviewed it for the job. I believe it more strongly now that I have the job, that there is a meaningful role for the cinematic experience in the American entertainment landscape moving forward. And I want to be a part of that story. I want to be a part of moving out of the pandemic and and overcoming those challenges and really reinforcing, you know, the American theatrical experience as is critical, not just economically, but culturally in terms of the impact it can have. You know, I think that another aspect goes back to what I said a few minutes ago. I just really enjoy this industry and I think it's important. And I wanted to be back in this space. So it's a little bit of a homecoming in that regard. And then, you know, the third thing, which kind of ties into the first thing I said was, I think that the cinema is important. I think it has a meaningful impact that people may not fully appreciate. But I think, you know, going to see something in the movie theater, not only are you enjoying the entertainment product, but you're having a shared experience, which in some ways is uniquely your own. And I think that one of the things coming out of the pandemic is it's very important for people to be back together and to be communicating and having shared experiences. Uh, I think one of the things that I see as a result of the pandemic is a lot of kind of the basic interaction and communication that we've had in the past seems to have kind of given way to, I'm just going to stay home and sit on the couch and order food. And, and so I am all in favor of things that get people out there interacting. You know, you go to the movies and you can talk with your friends about what your experiences was. You could be sitting three feet apart and have completely different experiences. And that's why I think one of the things that makes it so special.
2: It's a very diverse industry here in North America in a way that you don't really see in too many countries around the world where it's a lot more consolidated. Have you been able to get to meet a lot of folks, have conversations early on? I know it's a bit of an unfair question regarding the timing of when we're talking right now, but so far into the process, which conversations have you been able to have?
1: I've actually, you know, the people in this industry have been incredibly gracious with me in the few weeks since I took this position. They've made time to talk with me, be it on the phone or on Zoom. We're all going to, you know, find time to talk in person, which is always my preference at CinemaCon. But the people have been terrific. And I think, you know, Daniel, to your point, the diversity of this industry is one of its great strengths. You know, we really cut across the economic landscape. We cut across the geographic landscape. We cut across the political landscape. And, you know, I think that's a really strong, powerful point to make that. You know, people all over America have, you know, their own unique cinematic experiences. And so I think that all of that diversity, while it can cause, obviously, from a trade association perspective, can cause cause some complexity in building consensus. I think that it is overall a net positive and something that we need to lean into and highlight more frequently going forward. But every person, whether they are an independent, a mom and pop, a major chain has been supportive of me. They have great passion for the movie industry. They're across the board optimistic. And I think there's a strong desire to, you know, let's keep our our shoulder down and keep moving ahead and see what 2023 and beyond brings. Now, this is also a very vocal crowd, as you probably already
2: found out from our community of exhibitors. From those conversations that you've heard from with your members, what would a successful first year at the National Association of Theater Owners look like for you?
1: So I think, you know, my view of trade associations generally and NATO specifically is the trade association exists to allow our members to have an environment where they can excel in the marketplace, where they can do what it is they're trying to do, whether that's, again, as you said, a mom and pop or a major chain, which has theaters all over the country. So that's the overriding principle. I think at the end of the first year, I want the members across the board to be able to look at NATO, NATO's operation, and have confidence in the leadership that we have, confidence that we have a clear vision of what we're trying to attain, and most importantly, confidence that we have a plan to get to those priorities. You know, everybody in Washington has a strategic plan. The truth is what differentiates the people that succeed and the people that don't succeed is their ability to execute against it. So I think that is incredibly important. And I think the third thing, which is something which has already exists to to a very large degree, but something I want to build on and strengthen is, I think it's important for this industry to have a meaningful presence, not just in Washington, but in state capitals all across the country. Because I think it's important for people to understand exactly what it is this industry does and what it is doing to move into the future. Whether you're talking about the different types of formats in which you can watch a movie or talk about the investment that the theater's owners are making in their facilities in their concessions, and and all of those different things. I think that one of the things that you always run into when you're an iconic industry like the movie theaters is that people form perceptions about you. And sometimes those perceptions don't keep pace with the work that you're actually doing. And so I believe in engagement with elected officials and regulators so that they are aware of all of the great stuff that our members are doing to make the theatrical experience an important and meaningful one for consumers all over the country. Do you have a childhood theater that you
2: remember going to a lot, or or maybe a movie going moment that sticks out for you in your mind?
1: I I think there were a couple of theaters where I grew up. I grew up in Western Montana in uh, Missoula, which is a university town. It's beautiful, love people to go and spend their tourist dollars there but there were two theaters one of which is still there was the Wilma theater on Higgins Avenue and which was just kind of very ornate fancy theater and then there was another theater uh, not too far away called the Fox Theater and what i recall about that theater was it had this very tall you know probably two stories which for western montana at the time was tall two story marquee with flashing lights that ran up the marquee and then at the top it lit up in big white neon letters fox and i remember that vividly you know i think that You know, one of the memories that I have from my childhood actually occurred in Knoxville, Tennessee, where my grandparents lived. And I went and saw the movie MacArthur with Gregory Peck and notwithstanding his excellent abilities as an actor. It was not a particularly memorable movie, but what made it significant to me was my grandfather, who went to the movie with me had served with General MacArthur in World War II. And our families were friends and their kids knew each other. And so when you're a nine-year-old kid and you're sitting in front of a big screen and you're seeing a movie about an American war hero, and it's also a big part of your grandfather's life, and he happens to be sitting next to you, it's pretty hard to beat that experience. So I always have very, very fond memories of that opportunity and that movie. And it's something that I've carried with me my whole life.
2: Let's talk about your movie-going habits today. Uh, You're in the D.C. area. How often do you get to go out to the theaters?
1: So I try to go out as regularly as I can. I think, you know, one of the things that is instructive about my movie going experiences, I'm never able to go at the same time more than once or twice in a row. So I'm not one of those folks who's able to go every Friday night. And one of the things I love about the movies is there's always an opportunity to go that fits with whatever my schedule is at the time. So I do love going on a Friday night and seeing the big premiere, but I also like going on a Tuesday afternoon and maybe uh, stealing in a matinee. I remember a couple of years ago, I went during the afternoon and saw the new James Bond at the time, the new James Bond movie in a great little theater up in Northwest and you know had a glass of wine and just it was an amazing experience so I think I'm kind of proof positive that there's something for everyone in the movie going experience and that depending on regardless of what your life and your schedule looks like there's a time when you can go enjoy the movies so I enjoy all formats I do like the big comfortable seats. I'm not going to lie about that. (laughs) And I, you know, I I take a fair amount of of heat for this, but I, my favorite concession product is, uh, is Twizzlers. I love licorice.
2: There's nothing wrong with Twizzlers. (laughs) That's fine. As long as you're not putting it in like a bucket of popcorn with butter, I don't think there's going to be too many heads turned with that.
1: Okay, good. I appreciate the validation. I need to to support on that.
2: I'm going to say, if that's that's your controversial take in the first (laughs) interview we do together, we're going to be fine. I I think. (laughs) Fair enough. Well, I do have to ask you the tough question now, because it is putting folks in the spot whenever I ask it, your favorite movie.
1: I would pick The Dark Knight, Christopher Nolan's Batman movies. I love that whole series. I think Christian Bale, who I generally think is an amazing actor is, you know, for me, will always be Batman. We've had a number of Batmans in my life, and uh, he's the best for me. And, you know, Michael Kane as Alfred is just absolutely amazing as well. So those uh, movies I thought were amazing. So I would say The Dark Knight.
2: Michael O'Leary, thank you so much for joining us here on the Box Office Podcast.
1: Thank you, Daniel.
2: And thanks again to Michael O'Leary, the incoming president and CEO of the National Association of Theater Owners. He begins his term on May 1st, right after the end of CinemaCon 2023. And now coming up, we want to hear a little bit more from NATO. That's why we brought in Rolando Rodriguez, the chairman of the National Association of Theater Owners. Rolando, thank you so much for joining us here once again, here in the CinemaCon edition of the Box Office Podcast. So much to talk about. Uh, Congratulations again on receiving the NATO Marquis Award. I think it's the highest honor that NATO uh, bestows here to an executive in the industry. And it's such an interesting and important time here for exhibition because it does feel like we're at the start of something new. It looks like the industry now has a momentum that it hasn't had since 2019. It really feels that way right now in the marketplace. There's a new leadership coming in, the National Association of Theater Owners. There's going to be a new era starting. And I wanted to hear from you just how you feel about this new chapter, I think, in all of our
0: careers from your perspective as the chairman over at NATO. Well, first of all, thank you, Daniel. It's always a pleasure to uh, spend some time with you, and I appreciate the questions. Look, I, I mean, let me start out by saying I'm totally humbled by this incredible award, you know, the marquee award that I'm receiving through NATO. You know, when I think about certainly my career through AMC Theaters and Rave Cinemas, and frankly, I couldn't have done it with a great team at Marcus Theaters to reach this pinnacle. You know, I'm very grateful for the time that I've spent in this, what I believe uh, is an incredible industry. But look, as you noted, I think it's what's going through kind of a resurgence, right? When I say that, as we look at, we're finally coming out. what I would say getting that momentum on a weekend, week out basis of the industry coming back. And so from the product perspective, as we think about the industry itself, the fact that we're getting not only two and sometimes three movies a week, but we're also getting quality films. And then we're getting a lot of help from the film companies that are now promoting these films back in theaters and not just, you know, it's not a day and date situation with streaming is the fact that we're celebrating this great art form that's financially more attractive to both the film studios and obviously for the financial well-being of the theatrical business and this art form to continue to survive. So that's, that's one strong piece that's happening. The second one, as you noted, is that, you know, we have a an amazing leader and a great friend of mine in John Fithian that's actually retiring. And, uh, you know, he's had a 22-year career in NATO and actually 30 years within our industry. It's a great friend, and he will be long remembered for all of his legacy and incredible work that he's done in leading this great organization for those many years. And with that, we're actually very excited as well in welcoming Michael O'Leary as the new leader that's coming in to the industry. And look, we're very proud. This was, I think, a very good decision for our industry. We're looking at somebody that is familiar with our industry, but also brings a lot of different perspectives from the outside of our industry that will make us a little bit more unique and look at things a little bit different. And when you couple that, his great leadership that's coming in with the fact that we have an A-plus team in NATO that's been built you know, through John, Fithian and and this incredible team. And as you know, exciting stuff going on with the Cinema Foundation and what Jackie's doing in there is just, you know, really knocking the ball out of the park. We just released a great report that I'm sure you've seen that really talks about, you know, the state of our industry and that we're coming back. And and so now, believe it or not, this morning, I was seeing some different emails from different folks that are getting very bullish. You know, we were very bearish and now people are getting bullish and thinking, hey, we may hit nine. Now Now I'm hearing numbers like nine and a half billion. Look, none of us know. But the exciting thing about this, Daniel, is that we're on our way back and the journey is back and we're moving forward.
2: And I think it goes to show what I think a lot of us have been saying since our cinemas reopened. That if we can work as a team, distribution and exhibition together, it's around the corner. It's attainable, it's reachable. And there were some tensions, I think, earlier on in the pandemic as some of the window experiments were coming through. And then when we saw some dates getting pushed, some of the calendar changes, some of them produced by COVID delays, I understand that. It seems like that's behind us. It seems like every studio, and correct me if I'm wrong, is looking at their theatrical slate and looking to add to it, not only this year, but in future years, in a way that in the last two, three years, for a those you know, it was more of a subtraction on what came to theaters as it is today. What's your reaction on that? Do you think we're going to be at a point where we're going to stop
0: this exhibition calling on more content to come out? Are we getting to that point? Yeah, I think so. Look, I will echo what you just said. We had some fabulous meetings, NATO representation meetings, about three weeks ago in L.A., where it was basically John Fithian, Bob Bagby, Jackie Brenneman, and myself. And we toured and met with all of our senior leadership teams at every one of the top film companies. And I got to tell you, we left those meetings very excited, very excited by the fact that our partners are right there with us. These film leaders recognize and have always recognized the importance of the theatrical business. And as we talk, while we can't go into specifics on each one of the theaters or each one of the film companies, what I can share with you is your enthusiasm that it was echoed by them as well on the number of films that they're actually coming out. You know, And, and so when I look at companies like Lionsgate, right, that had a a very limited slate last year. Their slate this year is fabulous, right? I mean, and I, and believe me, I saw the same thing from Disney. I saw the same thing from Warner Brothers, Sony, Paramount, you know, Universal. And, and all of these companies have incredible slates in 2023 that we were all very cautiously optimistic right at the beginning of the year. But what we forgot is that we're in this great art form where the consumers have recognized the value proposition that we offer in the theatrical experience. And they're seeing these great great movies on the large screens in these large formats that are really doing extremely well in the industry right now. And that means that it's fun, it's exciting, and it's great to see this journey back. And so I can tell you that all of the film studio heads that I met with were very, very bullish and very optimistic about the trajectory that our industry is on. And frankly, we're all getting excited every week because every week now, instead of saying, oh my God, we estimated X and it's coming in at Y, now we're seeing, oh, we estimated at X and it's coming in at you know X plus. <laughs> and, and that is an exciting time for us. It seems like a, I don't wanna say a delicate position,
2: but it does seem like there may be some consolidation In the future, as it pertains to some bankruptcies, as we've seen with major circuits, there is, I don't want to call it an instability, but the landscape today is still not a landscape for exhibitors of complete confidence as we still sort of lick our wounds from the pandemic, right? As we still try to recover from all that damage uh, that the pandemic caused. But it's important to have historical context here. And that's something that I know you can bring to this conversation, Rolando. You were around working in this industry the last time we saw some bankruptcies and some instability and some Consolidation happened in the early 2000s with this transition into the multiplex model. You've been through this. We know that this isn't the end of the day when there is this sort of situation. How do you see exhibition getting over this hump
0: immediately ahead of us? Look, uh, good question. I would say a couple of things to start out with. First of all, I want to thank not just our film partners, but frankly, I, I failed to mention thanking our vendor partners and our financial partners, and frankly, our developer partners, because they've all gone through a very difficult time period, as you noted, right? And through that difficult time period uh, of COVID and the challenges that, by the way, it wasn't just our industry, but every consumer-facing industry faced that those challenges at the same time, we had all of these great people stick around and work with us. Now, does that make them very confident in what's happening? Look, it's been a challenging time. People ask a lot of questions. I've always said this, and you've heard me say this many times, momentum builds momentum, right? And it builds a positive spirit. So when you think about the fact that the business is really starting to perform, that gives a lot of confidence to the vendor community, to the developer community, to the financial community, and frankly, to your question, to a lot of the exhibitors out there. You know, we've gone through cycles like this, as you noted. And in our industry, consolidation, I mean, if you think about it, it dates way back, you know, to the beginning of our industry. But actually, it picked up a lot of steams at different time periods. You know, back in 1995, all of a sudden, when stadium seating was introduced, a lot of companies decided to consolidate and get out of business. That ran all the way through the early 2000s. Some of it because people got into financial challenges along the way and overcapitalization. And some because they saw the opportunity of a great industry that wasn't going to go away. So look, do I think that there's going to be continuous consolidation in our industry caused by some of the financial challenges that are occurring at this point in time? Yeah, I think some of that will continue to happen. Do I think that it's a bad thing for the industry? Well, you know, look, I never want to see great entrepreneurs and great leaders that have built this industry ever leave this industry. So I hope that that is kept to a very minimum, to be honest with you. But it will continue. Some of that will happen and some of that will be led by possibly people that, you know, want to just basically move on from the industry. Some of it because they've been financially challenged through this time period. And some of it, and this is an important note to make, is because they believe in this industry. And they believe in the fact that the movies are coming back and they believe in the long-term viability of the business. So there are groups out there that are actually looking at this opportunity to go out there and actually see some additional growth. And that's a positive in a way. So yes, I think consolidation will continue to happen, but I'm also focused on the ones that are focused on a positive basis, seeing the opportunity of the industry and believing in the future of the industry.
2: You know, I think that's such an important point because when we talk about things and, and themes like consolidation in this industry, we don't talk about, like you just mentioned, the people that are investing in it, the people that are expanding. And in many cases, those are exhibitors that have been in this industry for decades and decades and decades. Very seldomly do you have private equity come in and take an overwhelming majority of screens. It's usually professionals that have been here for generations that reinvest. And continue thriving. It's not like we're seeing a complete changing of the guard here, even when we do have circuits
0: combine and merge. I think you're right. And look, and I'm glad you talked about the investment because the investment is not just that some of these entrepreneurs and longtime leaders within the industry are not just buying circuits, but actually they're buying the circuits and then they're investing additional capital into things that you and I have talked about many times better sound systems, improved seating, improved food and beverage. In other words, building up that consumer experience and taking it to the next level, because we as an industry, we cannot just settle, right? We're coming out of a difficult time period. And I know that capital is challenged, but in order to maintain the status with that consumer, that trust within the consumer, the beliefs in our industry and the experience that we can offer We need to make sure as exhibitors that we continue to invest in our future. And that means that that experience, not only from the customer service, the incredible associates that we have out there, but also investing in the experience itself that the consumer is having, that continues to show an amazing price value relationship with our product. And we've seen that across the board. I think there are plenty of examples. I can
2: bring up Alamo Drafthouse, a circuit that entered bankruptcy protection during the pandemic, came out, restructured, and has been expanding and investing in making its circuit more attractive. We see examples of this left and right in where we are in the industry today. It's a fascinating change and sort of leads me into what I wanted to talk about in terms of NATO, because it seems, and correct me if I'm wrong, that for the last two, three years, a lot of that attention in that board at the National Association of Theater Owners has simply been survival, right? It it was a very difficult number of years that we just absolutely had to ensure that as many cinemas were protected, It seems like we're slowly transitioning away from that, that we're leaving that period behind. And I wanted to get a peek here as much as we can into what are the future priorities over at the National
0: Association of Theater Owners?
2: What are those priorities that we're tackling now that we're seeing
0: the pandemic in the rearview mirror? We had a team that has spent probably the course of probably the past three months working on our strategic plan. And that still hasn't been fully rolled out you know to share with all the membership just yet but i can tell you that the themes that are around the strategy and we will be sharing that with our membership the themes that are coming around it, to answer your question really focus on the most important things to our business right now right they focus on the fact that we need to have a strong connection with hollywood and we need to have that strong connection because we need film product right we're we're a uh, consumer facing business that Shows, you know, an art form on our screens. And therefore, there needs to be enough product, enough film product, enough content available to make sure that we're satisfying the consumer's needs. So that's, that remains obviously a key and top priority for us. On the other side, we also remain very diligent and have to remain very diligent in our lobbying efforts that are associated with government regulation and government policies. And frankly, lobbying efforts that are necessary, not just on Capitol Hill, Daniel, but also at the state levels. There is a lot of changes that are taking place, whether it's in the labor arena, whether it's in the expectations, whether it's in taxation, whether it's what should happen with some of the products. These are all elements, right, that have a tremendous impact into our business as well. And then finally I would say that look we have a recapitalization of the industry that's going to be taking place uh, it's already happening right it's a combination of where is the financial wherewithal for the organizations to continue to grow and invest capital it's also you know looking at the future and looking and working with our great vendor partners on not just the product that we serve the services they provide But in particular, I would call out things like the projection systems, right? That in many cases are becoming obsolete. And we know that there's work to be done. It's my hope that we're able to come up with models that actually can satisfy the improvement of those projection systems, right? Because one thing is to have a great film. The other one is you need to make sure that you have the machinery that actually runs it, right? And displays it the way it should be. So... These are all, you know, priorities. And and I can tell you there's a long list of them, but the major themes, I would say, you know, come around those three. Look, I think that working very closely with our film partners. And frankly, this is a place where not just NATO, but also the cinema foundation is going to be playing a, a role for us. It's marketing and reconnecting with our consumers. That to me has to be job one of every exhibitor, right? So we have the macro pictures that we just talked about, the film content that we need enough film content, right? The fact that we need the lobbying efforts within Capitol Hill, and of course, you know, the lobbying efforts at the state levels. And then we also need the capitalization aspects that we're working on. But as exhibitors, I think our biggest component working with our partners at the film studios, working through NATO, working through each individual exhibitor, working through the cinema foundation, we have to find ways to make sure that the way we reconnect with those consumers, whether it's the social media, the marketing, the advertising, it's almost like how do we get back to a Got Milk campaign to ensure that we keep building that momentum. And some of that will come naturally from the fact that we have great films playing, and that momentum builds momentum as the consumer sits in that auditorium and they're watching the upcoming trailers of additional great movies coming out, that gets them excited about coming back into next week and the week after that to watch those other movies. But that's not just enough. We all need to be very diligent and almost really focus on a community level connection with our consumers to make sure that we're getting them back. Look, It's about consumers at the end of the day. We are in the business of people. We service people. We take care of customers that are people. And therefore, for us, our job, number one, is to make sure. So what keeps me up at night is to make sure that we're getting enough people that believe in our product, that come through our doors, that pay those tickets and visit our concession because they recognize that we're a great price-value relationship. Within that, we need to make sure we have the right product. We have the right capitalization and we have the right lobbying efforts and support from the governmental agencies, but we got to reconnect with our consumers. That's, in my mind, a key item for Exhibition. And that was Rolando Rodriguez,
2: the chairman of the National Association of Theater Owners here on the Box Office Podcast. A little bit earlier, you heard from Michael O'Leary, the new president and CEO of NATO. And even before that, you heard from myself, Daniel Luria, and Rebecca Polly, my colleague, and co-host here on The Box Office Podcast. Thank you again for listening. The Box Office Podcast is a collaboration between Box Office Pro, Box Office Company, and Record Edit Podcast. A brand new episode going over everything that went on today, here Monday, the first day of CinemaCon 2023. That is going to get released first thing Tuesday morning. Don't forget to subscribe so you get everything. All the new updates from this event, new episodes, every day this week. Thanks again for listening. We'll talk to you again tomorrow.